I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Today's guest is a broking veteran known across the London market and beyond. Alistair Swift is Head of Corporate Risk and Broking for Global Lines of Business at WTW, as well as CEO of Willis Limited. Recently, new WTW CEO Carl Hess has spoken about his desire for the group to get some of its swagger back. And I think this interview could mark the beginning of that process for the firm. Following the damaging twists and turns of the Aon merger saga of the past two years and the eventual sale of Willis Reed to Gallagher, it was refreshing to hear someone senior at the newly rebranded WTW come out fighting and start focusing on the future at the Global Broker and Advisor. Alistair didn't duck any of my questions. In fact, quite the opposite. So, I know every podcast introduction says that what follows is must-listen stuff. But this really is a must-listen episode. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world, which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as U.S.-based major carriers, and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA claim service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day? Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today. Alistair, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Mark, thank you very much, and it's great to be here with you today. Let's talk about the market. It's a really interesting market. Most of the businesses in the insurance market are talking about growth. Is that the same for WTW? Absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, for us, one of the key things from the point of view of our agenda is actually to get back into a real growth-focused mode. It's nice to be in a position now where we've got freedom around what we want to do from an investment perspective and armed, frankly, with the capital to be able to make those investments. And it's a very strange, or not strange, but different place to where we've been in some of the previous years. And so it's great to be there. So, yeah, I think absolutely the growth agenda, front and centre of what we're looking at doing as a business, I think it aligns very well with where the London market and the market full stop wants to be because insurance as an industry I know wants to be more relevant to its client base and I think we can make it be more relevant and I think we can grow its importance and its value to our customers. And what sort of classes and geographies are front of mind when you're thinking about new investments and also we've got a lot of market dislocation still, you've got clients with a lot of need, needing cover, needing to replace cover or 
just needing some cover. Yeah. Where are you investing most and where is that most of that growth going to come from, do you think? Probably the area, if I was to hire someone today where I could fill their every minute of every hour that they had, it would be on the cyber side of the business. There is a huge demand from a client perspective. It's a very distressed market at the moment. And it has some fundamental issues around aggregation that need to be addressed if it's going to really, I think, take off and be something that is purchased by all clients, not just a few clients. And we've got to get and start looking at how we evolve the product to deal with some of the systemic issues that exist within the cyber world so that we can free capacity and capital up to meet the needs of our client base. So that definitely would be one area where I think there is huge opportunity across the industry. Another is obviously, if you think around the investment that is coming around carbon neutrality and this drive to sort of net zero by 2050 for a lot of organizations. For us as an industry, we've played a huge part in frankly, dealing with risk in the climate world. Think of what we do from the point of view of cap programs, flood, whatever it happens to be. We've been in that space for a long period of time as an industry. And we've got to evolve our propositions to meet the needs of our clients as they're moving through this sort of transition. So for us, one of the key focuses is how we continue to evolve not only the product base that we've got, but also help our clients from a consulting perspective to make the journey to net zero. Because certainly out of all the big brokers, WCW is the one that I would associate most with having probably the closest relationship to the challenged end of the energy market and including the mining. Absolutely. Market. Yeah, we have a significant book in that area. And, you know, it's very difficult as an insurance broker to become the policeman for what every company should do and how they should behave. And actually, what we should be doing is helping those companies on their journey. And if you took the example at the moment of thermal coal, as an example, and its issue. Now, you've got some people that are making statements that they don't want to participate in that market. Well, frankly, if there was no thermal coal and the power stations were shut down, no one would be listening to this podcast because there wouldn't be enough electricity out there to, to allow it to happen. So we've got to help those companies make the transition. and We've got to help the utility industry to make the transition into cleaner areas. And that isn't switching it off. And insurance does play a valuable part in both ensuring the assets of today and creating the ability for that transition to happen. You know, for us, we've invested quite heavily in working through with a company to create a sort of independent way for companies to verify through climate transition pathways actually where they are on the agenda so that insurance companies can actually write the risk knowing that the company is on its journey to net zero. And you can get ahead of all that ESG scoring and the sort of things. You know that the insurers that you're going to ask to insure this client are going to presume you've got to do that consultation job with the client to say, you're going to come up as a 55, that's going to be bad, but we need to be able to show that you're on this path. And we've seen it. Drax, Europe's largest coal-fired power station, changed completely to being fired by sustainable wood chips. So these things can happen. <laughs> they can definitely happen. But the point is you have to help your clients through it, right? And what you can't do is just walk away and leave them stranded. We can't have a whole load of stranded assets. Otherwise, we're going to have a huge problem. So we've got to manage it from through the cycle and with the insurers. So absolutely agree with you on that point. I do think, though, as you think of 
this whole agenda. Part of it is also going to be around making sure that we've got insurance products in place to be able to deal with the investment that is going to come to actually make the transition. If you think of the trillions of dollars that are going to have to be invested in infrastructure and that transition, as you just described, from coal to wood chip, that doesn't come for nothing and there is a transition and there is a heightened risk for our client base as we go through that. We need to make sure that as an industry we're ready, we're prepared and we have the capital to be able to deploy in that space. Because presumably, obviously, from an underwriting perspective, some of these assets, everyone knows they've only got a finite time period left and presumably there's not huge amounts of good new money being thrown after that bad money. And then at some point, underwriters are going to worry about those risks being properly maintained and becoming worse risk as a result. They are, but most assets now, up until the point that they cease operation, are run pretty well, but what you've got is a decommissioning risk, right? So think of the environmental impact that is still there. You've still got to decommission the asset. You've still got to think on the coal side of things. You've still got reclamation bonds and various other things that are having to be dealt with post the close of any mine. And that still requires an insurance product. Toxic ash lying around that could fall into rivers and all sorts of things. Yeah, I couldn't possibly comment <laughs> around, uh, around that, Mark. That's really, really interesting. I wouldn't want to put a target on your head, but obviously the insurers have probably had a harder time from the environmentalists and probably they've overlooked the fact that all this business is brokered. So would you be able to stand up for some of these clients who are not going to be on the environmentalist sort of Christmas card list? What if they started to turn their guns onto you as a broker saying, stop brokering this business? Would you be able to stand up and say, no, well, this needs to be done? It won't make you very popular. Yeah, I think personally we will have to, right? And we do today. We are insuring assets today and businesses today that people in some walk of life, whether it be climate or something else, might have an objection to. And I think it comes down to the individual companies to manage what they're doing. Our job is to make sure that we create as many pathways as we can for that change. And as long as I can stand behind the fact that we're creating those pathways for change, then I don't actually have an issue with us insuring those assets in the first place because, frankly, otherwise there'll be no auto insurance, there'll be no aviation insurance, there'll be no marine insurance, and be pretty much no insurance for any of the assets that are out there that use a hydrocarbon. And if we created that environment, I think the world stops. Thanks for going into all of that. I think that's really, really interesting. You mentioned before that about cyber. I've been interviewing a lot of people about cyber recently, unsurprisingly. And the main thesis seems to be that there's been a bifurcation in the market between those that are really doubling down. I had um, Adrian Cox of Beasley on the show and CFC, obviously it's very cyber-focused MGA. They're more in the camp of doubling down with the ransomware problem, which exploded in the last couple of years. They want to really get closer to that risk and to solve that risk in partnership with those clients. And others, frankly, have moved further away from that risk and wanted to exclude it or get themselves on much, much higher excess layers. Would you agree with that sort of thesis of how it's going? And as a broker, presumably, you've got to go closer to the risk with the client. I don't think it's just cyber, though. So think across the industry as a whole. If you have deep knowledge as an underwriter in a particular area and you have expertise, you have an advantage from the point of view of attracting capital and being able to generate better returns for your capital base. So I do think you will see capital polarise around where there is true and deep expertise from an underwriting perspective. And you name two in CFC and Beasley who obviously have that deep expertise and obviously therefore feel that they have the confidence to be able to write more in that particular space. 
and they will attract capital to allow them to do that and have. But I think you see the same across the industry as a whole in that you're going to have to have expertise to attract capital and you're going to have to be really, really good at what you do. And it doesn't matter whether it's that or it's offshore energy or it's DNO, whatever it happens to be, you've got to have deep underwriting expertise. And if you do, capital will follow, you will be successful and you'll drive an improved loss ratio. If you don't, then you've got to think, okay, how do I develop and how do I balance my portfolio of risk? And that's where I think we're going to start to see more tracker capacity and consortiums and those types of things actually enter the market so that you do have automated follow capacity behind these deep expertise. Now, that could come in the form of capital that sits behind them. It could come as follow form facilities. It could come as consortia. But there is definitely going to be a flight to deep underwriting expertise. That's not necessarily even anything new, is it? It's just the way of the world. It's been this market's and how it's operated or the insurance market's route and modus operandi for as long as I've been in the industry, Mark. And, uh, you know, if it was my money, I'd give it to Beasley and CFC instead of somebody else who is a bit of a tag along. Um, It depends, right? (laughs) So what you've also got to think is they don't just write cyber. So if you were thinking how you were going to invest, I think you'd want to be thinking, okay, what is the most efficient use of my capital and how do I get that maximum return? And that could be one line of business or it could be multiple lines of business. But I think that would be the key as an investor that I would be looking at. So just in this market with some of your clients have got problems, ESG-related problems, cyber-related problems, and at the same time the market's still readjusting. And we're in the middle of Q4 reporting season, yet we can see numbers that are looking very, very nice and very rosy. Combined ratios in the 80s, which hasn't happened for a very long time. What are you saying to clients? Is it sort of enough is enough, we're going to come and start chipping rates down now? And also, are your clients really absolutely had enough of after three or four years of this? I think every client always has enough if they have to pay more for something than they were paying the previous year or they were getting less coverage, totally understandable, right? What there isn't, though, is any shock in this marketplace. So the direction of travel has been pretty consistent for a period of time. Clients have actually been able to budget for what they're expecting to come from a market perspective. Would you say that's almost the more important thing for some of the clients is it's not that something's going up or down, it's when it goes outside budget that always causes a problem? Yes, is the answer. The moment you step outside a client's budget, then they've got an issue. Whilst they're within it and they have an ability to manage their spend, manage what they retain if they want to, think around what their key risks are and how they're going to balance their portfolio manage that with their own boards, their own investors, think around their own investment strategy around it. If you can do that, then clients normally can manage through the market cycle. So they're sort of okay about it, what you're saying? Um, Look, as I said right at the beginning, no one wants to pay more for anything. But at the end of the day, if they can manage it and it's done in a controlled fashion, then yes. And also, I do think, you know, you hit on a good point at the beginning. Do I think the continued rate rises are going to carry on at the same velocity as they have done in the past? No. But I do think we're coming off the back of 15 years worth of a downward market. And we're now talking about change in the market that potentially has changed for a couple of years. I think it may have a little bit longer to run. But with the new capital coming in, with people having re-underwritten their portfolio, I do think there'll be an opportunity for good risks in certain classes of business to potentially they may get some rate relief that they wouldn't have had in previous years in some lines of business. But it's very much going to depend on the client, what their underlying risk profile is, what the exposure base is, 
and frankly, what happens through the rest of this year. Because if the capital doesn't get used, Q4 could be very interesting. Yeah, but we're definitely near the end of, of the hardening than we were this time three years ago, say. I think it all depends on what happens in the longer term. I mean, you know, underlying claims inflation that is inevitably going to happen now if you see what's happening with global inflation across the world has every opportunity, I think, to potentially drive underlying losses to increase. You've had the US court system that has been pretty quiet as a result of COVID for a couple of years, could potentially see some quite interesting results there and a number of settlements come through that, you know, frankly, haven't happened for the last two years to the same degree. What will that do to people's reserves, projections, all of those types of things? I think there are still some unknowns. So I'm not sure that I would yet be sitting here saying that we're at the end of this market cycle. Far from it. I think we're at a point where it's moderated. People are taking stock. And, you know, some of the sort of macroeconomic factors that are out there at the moment will probably influence where it goes in the future. And no one's going to accuse you of talking the market down, which is what brokers are usually accused of. So <laughs> well done for holding on to client expectations there. You've got a pivotal role in a global broker. And we're sitting here in London. How's London been doing during this period? How's it performing relative to the rest of the world? love this marketplace and it's absolutely unique and I think we should never forget that anybody who works here and has the opportunity to operate in this business is incredibly lucky because London has a very unique value proposition in comparison to any other financial centre across the globe. We have the benefit of deep expertise across the insurance industry supported with a very good banking system, very good legal system and actually, a, and not many people would say this, a regulator who actually gives, I think, our customers some confidence around the market as a whole. So you look at those things, and I think it puts us in a great position. As a market, though, there are certain things that we haven't done that we should have done, right? So are we innovating at the speed we should be innovating at as a marketplace? Definitely not. We have to improve what we're doing in that space. We've got to move into other areas of risk if we're going to continue to stay as relevant as we have been over the last sort of century, frankly. And so I think that there is a need for us as a business to and businesses to definitely speed up what we're doing from a, an innovation perspective. If I think of share of wallet, of where we are, reinsurance, definitely we're losing market share as a marketplace from a reinsurance perspective. But from a specialty perspective, I would say we're gaining it. You're seeing a retrenchment back into the London market of underwriting capability and capital. People realize that you need depth and you need depth of knowledge. You can go and put your capital out in the Middle East in Dubai if you want and try and underwrite 20 risks. But I know the 20 risks that you've got to underwrite and you'll have a budget that you've got to hit. And that'll only lead to one thing. So I think the People realize that. They know that in the specialty lines, you need aggregation, you need depth of knowledge, depth of experience. And that's where London comes to its fore. So it's doing pretty well. In the specialty world, yes. In the reinsurance world, no. And we've got to create better vehicles for capital to deploy into the market to meet those other needs. And are you encouraged by some of those? You'd say we haven't been quick enough in innovation. I suppose no one ever really is quick enough in innovation. But we have seen quite a lot of Innovation, we've seen the Brits key syndicate, algorithmic follow capacity. We've had Beasley's obviously got follow capacity. And there are new potential vehicles by which capital can come into Lloyd's, for example. Are you encouraged by some of that? 
I am encouraged by it, right? The follow side of things is unique to this marketplace because of the subscription nature of the business. So it's innovation that is helping us from a market perspective and taking out some of the frictional costs that exist within the industry as a whole and that very complicated value chain that exists at the moment. But I wouldn't put that at the same point as innovation from point of view of product evolution. And, you know, I think how long we worked on creating a reputational risk product with some insurers in London, which has been very successful and clients like it. And that's fantastic. But it took a long, long time to get that through both you know, with the insurers, with the regulator, and to a point where it could be launched and truly valuable to our clients. So I think there is still an element of, I'm going to say, caution that exists that sometimes inhibits innovation. And I think sometimes the capital loading that you have on innovation causes some hesitancy from people to branch off into new areas. And if we could find ways of creating some vehicles that don't have quite such high capital loadings to support what is coming from an innovation perspective, then I think we would see faster innovation, which would be beneficial to our clients. And do you see the broker's role as being the person chivying that along, pushing it and pressurizing that and almost in the way that brokers have over many years of if you thought the market was failing and to innovate quickly, they almost make it innovate itself and actually form that capital and form that expertise. Absolutely our role. We're the closest to the client, we have and should have the best understanding of our client's needs. And we should be pushing the market to work with us to create those new forms of, I'm going to say, either advisory solutions. It doesn't necessarily have to be risk transfer or risk transfer. And I think one of the key elements of it is as an industry, too often we always jump to, okay, I've got to transact this. I've got to create a transaction off the back of a risk exchange with a corresponding partner. I think if you look at some of the emerging risks that are coming through for our client base at the moment, actually working and developing things that help a client manage risk versus transact risk will be one of the roles that a broker has to start moving into. I don't think you're going to be able to just rely on a transactional capability anymore if you're really going to be in the innovation space. Does that mean you've got to be a bit more confident about getting your clients closer to those underwriters and not worrying about losing your space in that relationship? Or That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying here is you've got to develop an advisory capability in addition to what you previously had as a broker, which is this close relationship with underwriters and with capital. If you're moving into the advisory space, you don't necessarily have to have that same attachment to capital. What you have to have is you have to have a deep ability to be able to find people that can advise clients on what the solution for their issue and their problem is and create a pathway for them to solve the issue. Now, if that is a capital transaction with an insurer, great, but it doesn't have to be. It could just as easily be preventing something happening in the first place for a client. We're sitting here in WTW's office. You've just done a rebrand. Tell us the story behind the rebrand. Is it all about a fresh start after what's happened the last couple of years? As you know, we've been on a journey around connecting this organization for quite a few years, right? So whether it was back in Willis days or TW days or when we came together as Willis Towers Watson, it was all around connecting and around bringing the whole of our organization to our client base. 
And what we've done as we've looked now at the new brand for the organization is Willis Towers Watson is becoming WTW, right? We don't want it to be sort of, I don't say, caught up in these two old brands. We want to come across as one business, one brand, very bold fashion, really thinking around what the future of this industry is and being there to play on a connected basis for our clients so that we're delivering the entirety of our organization to our client base where and if they want it. And that, I think, is at the heart of what we've done from a branding perspective. The second piece with it is absolutely to be bold and out there. You are going to see this organization be far more bold than either of the two previous organizations have been. But we also don't want to forget the legacy of our business. And so we've made sure that that has been captured in the brand as well, because there's a lot of pride in where these businesses have come from. In another six years, we'll be a couple of hundred years old. I don't think there are that many brokers that have had that type of longevity and ability to be able to deal with clients for that period of time. I suppose over the last couple of years, you must have had a lot of sympathy from presumably lots of underwriters and, and even former rivals as obviously what was a very difficult period was, was negotiated. How did you keep everything together during all that uncertainty? Part and parcel of the culture of this organisation, Mark. It's What was so wonderful is people actually really like working here for this business. And the legacy that we have has been one where people want to be working in this organisation and with each other. And we have a very collegiate culture as an organisation on a global basis that really binds people to the organization. And yeah, we lost some people. Of course we did. You create the type of uncertainty that is out there with a acquisition with another major competitor. It's going to create some uncertainty. Some people will struggle with that uncertainty and think around different things. But if I think of my management team, I have 12 people in my management team. I lost one through that period of time. I'd expect to lose one every couple of years through the process. That's the market cycle that exists. So I have to say that I asked them, you know, why are you all still here? You know, how did you cope with it? Just like you've asked me. And the answer to it is, is because at its heart, they enjoy the people that they work with. They enjoy the clients that they've got. And they believe we've got something very unique as a business that actually would have been retained through the combination. And they had no fear around that combination and how they would have fitted into it. Obviously, we've been talking about, you know, the broker's role of connecting everything together and going as far as finding investors if the market's failing. Now, you don't have the benefit of Willis Re anymore, which has you know, gone elsewhere. Your former colleagues there, obviously their job is to connect insurance to the capital markets very specifically. Without that, will you find it hard to stay relevant as just WTW as an insurance broker only and not putting your tentacles into reinsurance and the capital markets? No. Right. Bluntly, I don't think so at all. I think if you think of where we see the business evolving and where growth is in the industry as a whole, growth in insurance is outpacing growth in reinsurance very significantly. And so as we look and we see the future of the business and how insurers are going to be able and capital will be able to balance its portfolio by being far more focused around how they deal with distribution and are able to source risks to balance their portfolios because there's so much more data that exists and there's so much more technology that will allow you to source and balance risk that you want, your actual need for reinsurance should become less, not more. And there's nothing stopping us, by the way, going to the capital markets to support product innovation in some way. It doesn't have to be through a a reinsurance vehicle. 
there are other ways of attracting capital into this industry. And for us, the key piece is around making sure that we create and still have a business where we are serving insurers as well from the point of view of our consultancy and technology business. But we see the future very much around managing insurers' portfolios of business through distribution. And as we think of the evolution of reinsurance, there is a reason why it's being outpaced by the growth of insurance, and that's because its reliance doesn't need to be so great as you get more granularity around the data that you have and you have more knowledge and less volatility in your portfolio as an insurer because you can manage what you're doing on the front end of the business. What about some of these new risks you mentioned before about the need, for example, to solve the problem of aggregation in cyber? And then that sounds to me like that's a reinsurance problem, isn't it? It would be interesting to see how many reinsurers ran away from the problem versus actually drove in and leaned in to try and solve the problem. And I think that's exactly why we've got one of the issues we've got in the cyber market at the moment is because reinsurers weren't looking to adapt and innovate in that space. They were looking to try and deal with the things in a traditional and a very traditional way. And what we've got to do is actually think around how you address it in a different fashion and it's not reinsurance. So would you say that the nature of all these new risks, these cyber risks and reputational risks, other things, that they're much more systemic because they're so much more digital, let's say, and much more live in that sense, that even the most traditional old-fashioned risks are going to become more digital because we're going to have Internet of Things data streams coming off every factory pretty soon these days if we haven't already got them already. Are you saying that then that those solutions are going to be almost part of the insurance package straight away, almost like you buy the insurance but you buy something effectively facultative reinsurance but affects co-insurance or co-reinsurance around the world as part of insurance and so that treaties for example might become irrelevant anyway at some point in the future. I think I would say that your speed of adjustment is increased massively from the point of view of digitization and technology. So, so you're saying you could be laying off that risk when you know that that 100 million line has to be laid off to an extent because of the aggregation problems. What would be traditionally reinsurance problems, you could say you could solve them as an insurance broker. Oh, you could solve them as an insurance broker and there may be a peak risk that you have to deal with from a facultative perspective, but you don't buy a very expensive treaty to have to deal with a whole load of peak risks because you've already managed that through your insurance portfolio because you've got the data around what that portfolio is, how it operates. And similarly, your speed of being able to, as an insurer, adjust your portfolio is far greater than it ever has been in the past because you've got far more data around your own portfolio and what the loss trends are and how they will affect things as you move forward. Some of those traditional treaties are probably going to die out anyway because they're very inefficient with these minimum deposit premiums that are incredibly inefficient. If you think you're going to write a certain amount of business and you don't because the market moves against you, you can be stuck holding a minimum deposit premium that's very unpleasant. Absolutely, and it also potentially drives the behaviour that we were talking about around people needing to write income in Q4 if you're all of a sudden sitting there and you haven't got that premium volume to cover that M&D, you're going to start chasing after it. Well, it actually has an unintended sort of pro-cyclical behaviour. Exactly, which then starts doing something very different to the market. So as friction disappears, then of course it becomes easier to do so many more transactions that you wouldn't be able to contemplate before. Should be. I won't talk more about the loss of Willis-Reeve, but obviously you've got some quite ambitious margin expansion targets. Like I'm sure like every broker has got... How can you do that? Obviously, reinsurance broking has always been traditionally a very nice high margin part of the business. And how are you going to hit all those without the benefit of that? For one, I think probably if I was an insurer, I'd be looking at the margin that the reinsurance broker was operating in. And I'm not sure they're going to be as sustainable as people might have thought in the coming years. But from our own perspective, as I think about us and what we will look to do from the point of view of margin, one is you have to think around 
areas of high growth that you can deliver. And for us, we can see that we can grow exponentially in the specialty space, not just from the point of view of the traditional specialties that were connected on a global basis. So for us, that would be what we would call our GLOBs. But also in... Can you explain what that is? Uh, global lines of business. Oh, good, okay. good. So it's very simple. Jargon um, busting. Jargon busting, <laughs> yes. Um, but actually local specialisation as well. So, you know, go deep in particular industries. So think of something like real estate in the UK and across Europe. And for us, we've built a what we think is a spectacular proposition for our client base in there. And as a result of it, we're showing exponential growth in that area. And there is far more room, as I mentioned earlier, to grow in insurance than there is in reinsurance. So if you can actually be very relevant to your clients in a particular industry, it will give you a chance for sort of exponential growth in those particular areas. And if you create that growth, your cost base doesn't necessarily move at the same rate as growth and therefore you get the ability to improve the margin of the business overall. So we can see by being very focused in certain growth areas and making sure that we're focusing our investment around those particular growth areas that actually we should be in a position where we can definitely improve the margin of the business. If you've got those high problem, high growth segments, you've made the big investment in them, then suddenly you get a huge amount of growth. And obviously, if you've digitized as much of that as you possibly can from day one, then presumably yeah. you get huge benefits and margin expansion. Absolutely. It helps you manage your cost base as well with the digitization aspect. And you know, similarly, if you think of digitization, digitization should be something that's a huge facilitator to this marketplace as well. So there's too much rekeying of information that goes on still. If you can properly digitize data and enter it once into a system from anywhere in the globe, yet access capital wherever it is, you create a totally different dynamic and you actually start removing some of the frictional cost that is existing in the transaction today, both for you know, a broker and an insurer. I mean, if I was to say to you every time a schedule of values goes into Lloyd's, every insurer in Lloyd's will trot off probably to a different provider to have that data cleansed before they put it in their models. And by the way, we would do that as a broker as well on behalf of our clients to make sure that the data was correct as well. So all parties in the chain are doubling up with different providers to come up with their own single source of data to actually underwrite a portfolio of risk. How can that make any sense logically in today's world? We should end up with one source of data cleansed once and delivered correctly into the insurers and the brokers. And if we can get to that point then that naturally will take frictional cost out of the system. I had Bronick Maziada on the programme, mostly in his capacity as uh, chair of PPL. And um, yeah, you should uh, get together. It sounds like you're all singing from the same hymn sheet. I mean, do you think we're much closer to getting it done, the core data record and all this stuff? It's all going to happen this year, isn't it? Finally, after many years. It's a bit like builders. They always give you a finish date, but they never normally hit it. And I have to say, from a technology perspective, I've never genuinely seen a technology project that has finished ahead of schedule. So I think they're... Are you confident that we're definitely going to get a finish? We might be over I think we are going to get a finish. Yes, is the answer. And we need to, because actually being in a position where we're using structured data to create contracts will put this business in a very different position. And people can see that's the future of the industry. So I do think that we will get to a finish. I think we have to. So you've got this fresh start, and you've also got a fresh start in the shape of a new CEO, Carl Hess. What should we expect? What's the difference in style between Carl and his predecessor? Carl is a very engaging individual, and 
the thing I've noticed most is his desire to be involved with the insurance broking side of the business. He has a genuine interest and passion for what we're doing on the insurance broking side of the business, how we're looking at risk and advisory, and where we can go in that particular area. The moment he was appointed into his role, he was heavily engaged with colleagues, very happy to come and engage with anyone through the organisation. And I think he genuinely realises, as you think of insurance broking businesses, that they are people businesses at their heart and that you need to engage fully with them. And we've seen a level of engagement that's been fantastic from him in that space. And it's been very nice to see and have that as part and parcel of his new way of operating the business. He also has a very inclusive way about him from the point of view of drawing on expertise, broad expertise from across the company. And that, again, is part and parcel of the culture that we have as an organisation. And he's just bringing more of that to the fore. And he's deeply passionate around us operating as one business. Hence the rebranding, hence how we will go to market and how we will develop the culture of the organisation. So, frankly, great start. Pleased he's our CEO and leading the business, as I know are a lot of other colleagues within the organisation. And in terms of the end of this Aon merger affair that's been playing out in public for such a long period of time, would you say that it's fair to say that that's ended the uncertainty? Or, of course, what would you say to people who say, well, it just means that you're effectively still in play? I would say it's nice to know from a regulatory perspective you can't be bought by two major competitors and that you can always acquire. And it sounds like you certainly seem fired up, Alistair. I wish you all the best with all of this, with this market. This is a market full of opportunities and challenges. And um, I wish you every success with this fresh start that you've got. Mark, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to do the podcast with you. I am fired up, genuinely, hugely passionate about the business, hugely passionate about the London market and what we can deliver, and frankly, what insurance can deliver for society as a whole. So really appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with you this afternoon. So thanks very much. Well, thanks you for coming on, because I don't think it's very easy sometimes. Given all that's happened in the last two years, I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's been really, really good to talk face-to-face. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me. Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.